Let's talk to interesting people. Let's talk about the process of seeing things differently. Let's talk about the craft of molding truth and fiction together to arrive at something new and exciting. And let's have fun while doing it. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast. Hello and welcome to True Fiction, the podcast that interviews creative people and finds out what sparks their creativity. I'm your host, Patrick Boggs. Across the table for me is our double-barreled co-host, Norbert Yates. How are things going tonight, Norbert? Staying warm. Staying warm. So staying warm is all you can do in the Midwest right now. <laughs> it's, it's pretty nasty. We have a great show tonight. I'm pretty excited about our guest. We, ha- we will be interviewing an American comedy writer, songwriter, and actor. He's also a six-time Emmy Award winner and our favorite square on the Hollywood Squares. True Fiction welcomes Bruce Valanche. Hey, Bruce. Hi how's there. it going? No, it's wonderful. I was just talking to Mike Pence and mother. <laughs> They're not I one in the same? I was going to talk to some Indiana boys. And, <laughs> and you know, Mike said, don't be in a room alone with them. <laughs> I guess he doesn't like to be in a room alone with anybody. So, Yeah. What are you and and who wants to be in the room alone with him? Thank <laughs> you. You're just jealous because we had a governor that looked like Race Bannon. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But I've got a movie star governor, so I, you know, that's I, true. Yeah, there's no way we can. I got talk a governor to play James Bond. So <laughs> <laughs> I read that your mother got you started in uh, kind of in the business. So could you talk about that a little bit? Well, I got her kind of. Started. She was she was sort of a showgirl, but uh, she married young, and so she never really pursued that career. But she was fascinated by show business and always wanted to be a part of it. But it wasn't like Gypsy, you know, where she was pushing me on stage. Sure. Bring out Louise. That was nice. She wasn't <laughs> one of those. But she recognized uh, when I was very little that I liked I liked to perform. And I, I would make faces in the mirror and I would dance around at family gatherings. And so she just, you know, they enabled me. My father uh, was, was quite smitten with her and showgirls in general. Uh, loved show. He loved musicals. He loved show. But he was a doctor, and he loved. It was he really was the, the tired businessman. He liked to go to to see shows, and he put money in shows. And so they were both steeped. And you know, this was in New Jersey, and we were right across the bridge from Manhattan, New York, and we'd go to Broadway all the time. Uh, and uh, so it was. It was. And her family was very theatrical. They were funny. Uh, her uncle was actually a Catskills comic. He was not a successful Catskills comic. He was, but he was. Like he would, Catskills comic, the kind of goes, guys would go up to the mountains in the summer on the weekend, and they'd do three different hotels in a night. And then they would wow. drive home to Brooklyn. Uh, and that was my uncle, Mickey Landau, her uncle, actually. So they, had, they, they were all kind of steeped in show business. Uh, on that side. My father's family was very German and they were very practical. They were all doctors. So I got a lot. I got a lot from my mother's side of it. Yes, that That's that funny. enabled me. But they were smart. They just saw that I was I was happier doing that than doing math yeah, or, or playing baseball or any of the things that, you know, the other boys were doing. <laughs> You're not like the other boys. You're not like the other boys. <laughs> I'm, I'm really just amazed. I, you know, I'm reading up on your st- on your uh, like your uh, your Wikipedia and all the your different sites. By the way, well, we got Bruce.com. Is that what it's called? Yeah, that's awesome. It's a fan site. I uh, wondered about by, that. By an old fan, an old fan of mine. Uh, actually, he was a, a fan of Bette Midler's, who I've been working with for fifty years, which is <laughs> unusual because she's only thirty-eight. 
But uh, he had a he had a, a, a Bette Midler fan site, and he said, "Well, as long as I'm doing it, I'm going to do your fan site." This is when I started doing Hollywood Squares, uh, when all of this, you know, when the internet was exploding at the very beginning. So he's got it's called WeGotBruce.com, and he knows more about what I'm doing than what I'm doing. <laughs> well, it's a great site for people that want to know about Bruce. I loved it. I was just uh, thought, wow, this is so cool. But I I should have with the name We Got Bruce. That's an awesome name for a fan site. Um, you, well, you spent... it, comes off of, it comes off of the movie, which was made about me uh, 20 years ago, a documentary about me, made by Harvey Weinstein, who never laid a hand on me. Damn it. Hashtag, why not me? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> kind of like that ugly little Boy Scout that the... That's the... exactly right. <laughs> well, bless me, you man. <laughs> uh, uh, he, no, uh, he was great. I had a great time with him. And I, had, and I truly had no idea anything else was, what was going on with him and, and women, because I wasn't that close to him, you know, we were, they made a movie about me and, and he was editing it and promoting it. Uh, but that was 20 years ago, it was called Get Bruce. And I keep saying, we're, we're gonna do a sequel called Had Bruce with a, with a much larger <laughs> cast. But that's where uh, Don Bradshaw, who runs the website, uh, he, he got that name off of that. What was the first thing that you worked on or you performed or you wrote where you go, okay, I've got something here. Was was it something that you did personally or did was it something that you feedback that you got from somebody that went, you know, I'm moving towards showbiz and, and, and I've got something? Um, it was a long, long time ago, uh, but I uh, I would perform and they would laugh and applaud. And that's your that's the first sign, you know, that's kind of like uh, with COVID, uh, losing your taste of sense and smell. <laughs> when that happens, you know you've got something. <laughs> but I, the, the writing came later because I, I was focusing on the performing, but I was too young for what I was going up for. I never looked my age. I had a very deep voice and I was uh, big and so uh, and not athletic, but I would read uh, for parts and there were guys 20 years older than I was reading for these roles and they were age appropriate. I wasn't. So I, I wasn't going to get cast. I was a child actor and I grew out of that very fast. Uh, I was writing about all of this and my parents said, uh, oh, you should write. You should, you know, hey, you could be, a, you could work for newspapers. They'll never go out of style. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> but, so that, so that was, I guess the uh, approval came from parents and teachers at the beginning that they said, you know, you, you actually can write. This is not like ordinary. You are, you have a flair for it. I, I ran with that because it seemed like a great a great way to work my right. I could write for myself, like like Mel Brooks and Woody Allen. If I'd known I could write for myself and become a big movie star, uh, I might have done that. And I probably did know that, but uh, I just didn't pursue it that way. You and Bette Midler, that's a that's a, an amazing uh, re, uh, relationship. Uh, uh, binding. I was wondering first, how did you meet, and also. How does it work when you're writing for somebody? Do you guys meet together and do you discuss things or do you go off and write and just kind of throw things at her? Uh, it varies from person to person. With Beth, I met her when she, uh, I was in Chicago writing for the Chicago Tribune and she came through town on a vacation from Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway where she was playing the oldest daughter. And, uh, and uh, the guy who owned the improv, Bud Friedman, was managing her and he booked her into a club in Chicago called Mr. Kelly's. That was a very, a very hip show busy club. And uh, I reviewed her and I thought she was great. And I, I interviewed her and I said, you should talk more. And she said, well, you should, you're a very funny writer. You got any lines? 
And that was how it started. And I began writing for her. And with, with that, as with most musical performers, it's always built around the songs they're going to do, the music they're going to present. And they have to take a break from performing the music. And in Beth's case, her shows, uh, even when she wasn't in theaters, her shows were theatrical. She is, yeah, she's the spectacle. And then later on, when she got bigger, we actually had to get real other spectacle besides her. You know, so it was like icing on icing. And uh, and it, it works because she's so brilliant. But it always, uh, the, it, the, the material was always to get her into the next piece of musical stuff that was going to happen. With Robin Williams, there was no musical stuff. Uh, except like fun little things. But with him, it was, it was uh, I would write a bunch of stuff and throw it in the cage. And, uh, and then we would sit down and turn on the tape recorder and embroider and all of that. He would take it off and he worked almost every night. Robin would go to, into a club. And uh, it, I mean, even in later years, he would go into a club and break stuff in. And, and you know, when you get up on stage and you start doing something, you discover more things to do. And especially with Robin because he was so fast and so spontaneous. And then you incorporate all that stuff and it builds until you have uh, a hunk. <laughs> and then it, that becomes an act. So it, it, uh, it varies, but with all the musical people, it's uh, built around what they're really selling, which is the music. So that's, that's unusual in that she's so theatrical so much she does she does comedy musical comedy pieces and she does serious stuff and rock and roll and what used to be called nostalgia which is big band and swing we, we call it the hubba hubba uh <laughs> so she and she you know then in, after uh she's established herself as a movie star she was doing these huge ballads you know it started with the rose the rose yeah wings and from a distance and I mean and when she finally went back on the road again after 10 years of making movies and not performing live there was a whole audience of people who thought she was just this, this woman who came out and sang these big gut-wrenching ballads they had no idea that she was filthy <laughs> <laughs> they had no idea that she was a rock and roller and that she was bawdy and that she you know did political material. They thought everything was going to be, God is watching us. <laughs> That's one-tenth of, of what she does. One of the things that, what, what, it was interesting what you were saying about the different personalities. Do you find that it's, it's when you look at that, uh, the different characters that you're working with to sort of develop and write material, do you find that like sometimes it's easier with one person, uh, uh, one type of person or, is it all just like, okay, this is this is the 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 frame I'm working within. It really doesn't matter to me which frame I'm working within. I, I can I can make it work. Or do you find ah oh, this one's this is a tough nut to crack? Well, you know, you have to. I mean, it's kind of like I always say it's like being a dressmaker. You know, you're and and you're not gonna make the same outfit for share that you would make for Lizzo. <laughs> and you know, it's it's all dressmaking, but it can't be like well, I am Chanel and you're going to wear Chanel. If they want to wear Chanel, fine. I mean, if you're that kind, I'm not that kind of a writer. I don't go in on and say, oh, well, this is Valanche and you're going to have to do it this way. No, I'm writing for them. I'm, I'm working on their personalities. So you you build around them. The hard part is when they have no personality. Yeah, so I was going to wonder about that. <laughs> no, it's just, it's, that sounds cruel, but when you do award shows and, and things, Benefits, but a lot of war shows, which most of the public see, and you get people who are actors, and they have to get up and say things 
they have no character to play. Uh, they're not people who get up every night and are Bette Midler or Shirley MacLaine or, or uh, Whoopi Goldberg, Billy Crystal. These are people who get up on stage every night when they're not working on a movie and, and do a show. And Michelle Pfeiffer doesn't do that. Michelle Pfeiffer plays whatever the character is that she's chosen to play. Meryl Streep doesn't do that. When Meryl Streep has to get up, I mean, which is, Meryl Streep is an amazing individual performer uh, and she's unafraid. But a lot of these actors are afraid to uh, go to do something that doesn't have a character that's been given to them. And so you have to kind of put a persona out of them or find something that makes sense. And everything is very site specific. You know, if they're if they're giving an award for a certain category, you can focus on that category as opposed to them. It's right. It's really very tailor made and it it doesn't have a shelf life. And uh, but, you know, I cash the check. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. How, how long do you have to write something like that? Do they, for well, it can show? be endless. I mean, if it's if they're on the Oscar show, I mean, uh, everything. Uh, when when you're at that level, uh, everything goes through seven hundred hands: uh, uh, the publicist and the manager and the agent and the lawyer and uh, whoever they're sleeping with. And uh, I once got a note from uh, from Goldie Hawn's yoga instructor. Wow. <laughs> yeah. He had, he had noticed she left the pages lying around and he said, she won't say this. <laughs> I'm doing you a favor. She won't say this. <laughs> Seriously. So, I mean, it was a long time ago and she's, I believe, ditched, ditched him. But <laughs> I know the, I know the, isn't it the Emmys you're writing throughout, even, even while it's going on, aren't you still writing? Well, yeah. So like the Oscars is live, live or the Emmys. I've done more Oscars than Emmys. I've oh, done really? all, I'm the egot of award show writers. Emmy That's Grammy right. Oscars. 24 but, years uh, and 14 as head writer. That this is true. The uh, you want to keep the the feeling of the party going and that it's spontaneous and especially the, the Oscars and the Emmys are both uh, live live. Where where it's out here in Hollywood, it's five in the afternoon and it, it's eight o'clock in the east and. Uh, and people are watching it all over and they know it's a live thing. So you want to kind of keep the, the bubble going. And so you pay attention to what's happening on the show and the host can come out and make comments on it. And, and at times you throw away the script and you say, this is better than, than the script because it's immediate. So, yeah, uh, that's what I do. <laughs> that's awesome. That, and that uh, to me has got to be really quick on, you have to be quick on your feet. You know, I was I was looking at some of the people, some of your clients. Um, were you talking Robin Williams, um, Whoopi Goldberg, and also Billy Crystal? These guys were comedy relief people when they first started. Did you work on that? Yes, I did. I did all like fifteen. I think we did fifteen shows over oh, the year. Oh wow! Yeah, it was, uh, and I did a lot of uh, uh, their stuff uh, because the comics come of their own, and then there were some very serious appeals made by movie stars. But they would do a big opening thing and they would do a couple of spots in, in the course of the it was like a three hour telethon. And each one would get to do a solo spot of their own. Uh, so, yeah, there was there was a, a lot of that. And uh, it, they were they were wonderful shows, you know, and um, like everything else, they, they had diminishing returns after a while. I mean, the sure. charity was, uh, was working for itself a lot and. Uh, and there were other, uh, the homeless situation didn't go away. And it was like, well, you're back again with the homeless? And the last one, I mean, we did, the last one we did was Hurricane Katrina, which is, I'm sure, 10 years ago, if, more, if not more. 
and uh, because uh, it wasn't even that became like disaster relief. Oh yeah, and and it's been a proliferation of those kinds of shows. Stand up to, for cancer every year. I mean, it's like they brought back telethons. Right. I thought they died with Jerry Lewis, but no, they're still among us. Yes. Revenge of the telethons. Revenge, exactly right. They won't stop. So, do you find working with uh, comedians that perform stand up are they easier to write with than? Uh, you know, somebody that you work in a writer's room with, or do you find it more difficult since they're so prone to doing their own material? Or, well, they that the good thing about them is, uh, you never get from them, he won't say that. I mean, you're you're at the source, uh, and you know, if you're working with somebody and they say, No, I can't do that, I can't do that, whatever, I mean, that's much better than, than uh, in a writer's room where you're sitting with other writers saying, You think he'll do this. So, um, although that's, you know, I do that too. And uh, uh, I, I think it's what happens with, uh, with comedians with, and stand-ups in particular is that they spend the first part of their lives being rejected. No one cares about them. And, uh, you know, they have to fight. They have to fight to get time on at the clubs. They have to fight to get on television shows, uh, all of that. I mean, a lot of that has changed with the internet because you can create your own stuff on the internet and people will come and, you know, Randy Rainbow is, a, is a, a product of the internet. Back when I was starting out, it was much harder for them. And what happens is they, they catch on. And once they catch on, the star making machinery clamps onto them. And all the time they used to have to sit and write stuff has gone away because now that's spent in maintenance of their stardom. And they have a lot of things to do because they're stars. And uh, they don't have the time to write. And that's when they tend to take on collaborators because it gets the writing done. They find simpatico souls who work with them and uh, they get more material because you know, the hunger for the new material never stops, especially, I mean, and, and there's more at stake <laughs> because they're big names now. So, uh, yeah. you know, so, uh, so they're, they're, they're eager for the collaboration because they you know, sometimes I think they yearn for those days where they were sitting in the motel with nothing to do but play with themselves and write. <laughs> and Don't watch we all? No, I mean, <laughs> watch the days uh, of our lives. <laughs> I've always thought Bette Midler was a funny person. I don't know if she is just genuinely funny anyway. Oh, she's very funny. I, I just, and I've never even thought about somebody behind her. And I mean, you have to, you almost have to, I mean, I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from Bette, but. You had a lot to do with her success. You really did some of the big yeah. things. We, it was a, big it's, a great, it's a great collaboration. I wasn't alone. There were other people. Her, okay. hair, her first hairdresser was her first writer. Oh, and, wow. Uh, yeah. Mr. Bill Hennessy, also Mr. Gerard of Bergdorf Goodman. Uh, he was the very first person who wrote for her. And then they've all, you know, we had, we've had collaborators all along the way. Uh, but I was the one who was kind of like the point person. I guess I was the capo. <laughs> and and that you know kind of remained. She is she's hysterically funny. I mean, she is a real diva. I mean, she can turn on a dime. She can be <laughs> she can break your heart, and she can be hysterically funny. And you know, I mean, over the years, she's had moody periods, and you know, I mean, but we all have. In in Get Bruce, we talk about that actually. She is. I mean, there's something. Her body language is is, is exquisite, like nobody else's. I mean, she really does. Have, she's just naturally funny. 
and uh, and she has great timing and and, and in life she I mean she does that I mean, she's not the divine Miss M you know Robin was not Robin Robin Williams on stage he was off stage he was there was a, there was another person and he would turn on the persona when he had to but I mean he was a, a lot of what they were in in life fueled what they did on stage sure, so sure. It never it never totally disappeared but but uh, it was. Yeah, it was a lot of the stage stuff was one thing, and then and there, you know, and then they were they had another side that was much that was different. That's why they had the dark souls of comedian. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes it's it's tragically true. So let's switch to somebody else. You uh, were in Mahogany with Diana Ross. And the, which is, a, by the way, that's amazing. That's, uh, you know, just to be in that film, that legendary film is pretty cool. It is. It's so funny to hear a le- referred to as legendary. Of course, I know what you mean. But yes, it is. Le- when I met RuPaul years ago, it's like 20 years ago. And uh, when I was working with him and uh, he, the first thing he said to me is, you're in mahogany. <laughs> 32 minutes in. And so I went back and I put in the VHS and 32 minutes in is my scene. I thought, well, not for nothing is he RuPaul. <laughs> this, is not, this is not a dumb guy. <laughs> he, I mean, he is the real thing. He studied. He is. This is his life. And uh, uh, yeah, it was. And, and also that, you know, I didn't realize. I mean, because we, it was, you know, it was kind of a stinker when we, when we I mean, we made it. It was. It, it was very touch and go. First of all, it was written for Liza Minnelli. And wow, did not yeah, know that. You didn't want to do it because it was a real, and if you're old enough to remember this, it was what we used to call a Susan Hayward picture. Susan Hayward was a big redheaded movie star of the, of the 40s and 50s and 60s. And she made what they called women's pictures. And they were the kind of stuff you see now on Lifetime. Not Hallmark. Hallmark is very positive. Lifetime is very negative. Yes. Lifetime is always... there's a psychopath stalking them or they're terribly weepy soap operas. They have 12 children and they all have cancer. You know, it's that, those kinds of movies. And she won an Oscar for a picture called I Want to Live, uh, which was about a a murderess who was gassed, uh, a true story. But when you look at some of her titles, uh, I Want to Live, I'll Cry Tomorrow, I Thank a Fool. These were Susan Hayward movies. And Mahogany was kind of a Susan Hayward picture, although it was also like a Joan Crawford movie, because she was a, a, like a shop girl who becomes a world-class celebrity. Uh, so it was a fantasy kind of picture. And it was shot in Chicago. I was at the Chicago Tribune, and I was acting, and they sent me up for this part, and the director liked me. And uh, so I was cast, but the director, who was Sidney, F- uh, not Sidney, Tony Richardson, who was an Oscar-winning director, uh, he was under the mistaken apprehension he was making a Tony Richardson movie and he was making a Diana Ross movie. You know, oh, she had exploded after Lady Sings the Blues and this was her second picture. And it was Motown and they were on him. And he, so that didn't work out. So they fired him in Chicago. At, while, oh and Barry Gordy took over as director and he'd never directed anything. And it was his first thing. So it was ve- the whole thing was very seat of the pants. I had to rewrite the scene that we had shot already and, and we hadn't had time to learn it. So it's written on, on wrapping paper in front of us. And we keep looking down to see what the lines are. <laughs> and then there were some other scenes that didn't make it because Barry, Barry felt like we had to get out of Chicago and get to Rome right away. I did not get to Rome. <laughs> you know, he, he wanted Diana to go to Rome and he wanted, he, he thought Rome was more picturesque than Chicago. So no. 
and uh, and he he wanted the, the plot to move along anyway. It's it's quite quite a piece of work. <laughs> you know, but I am so proud to have been in it. And and then I did her Vegas act, and I've done many things with Diane over the years. She's uh, she's fantastic. I love her. Well, and that's exactly what I was going to ask about. I mean, you oh. did Bette Midler, who when we see her, you know, of course. I don't get to hang out with her backstage or anything like that, or just, you know, watch her water or flowers or anything. But when I see her on the screen, this is, she's just like a force, you know, she's very funny and vivacious and she's all over the place. That's not what I get from Diana Ross. I get a totally different vibe from Diana Ross. Yes. And um, a little more stoic. (laughs) I think I might be a little afraid of Diana Ross sometimes. How was she to write for and I, didn't, uh, I wouldn't exactly call her funny. Wonderful. I mean, we the, the show that I wrote for her, the first show I wrote for her, uh, was we did as a t- it became a TV special called An Evening with Diana Ross. But it was her first show after she left Motown. You know, she had been there from the, the Supremes or the Prime Mets, whatever that group was before the Supremes. This was her Declaration of Independence. She said, "That's it. I'm uh, uh, I'm going to do what I want to do." and she, this show was put together without any of the Motown elements. And they all came to see it and they all gave us many notes. Uh, so she was very like, yes, I'll try that. Let's do that. Let's do this other thing. Because they never would let her do any of that stuff. Because, you know, she had been sculpted in this image that Barry felt that she should be. And to be fair, I mean, Motown was a gigantic, gigantic success and enterprise. And, and sure. Barry had a vision where, you know, he had, he wanted these these girls and these guys from the projects who were insanely talented to be showcased in the most elegant way possible. So the girls had wigs and they all had, everything was sequined and it was all very, it created its own style, but it was based on, you know, old movies he had seen with white people. And the idea was, and and some black people, but the idea was to make them as elegant and grown up and sophisticated while singing R&B as possible. And so that meant that, you know, she was in very tight, kept in a very tight box. And so she was happy to expand once she, once she decided she was going to do that and try different things. So she was great. She was, uh, she was wonderful. Well, I, I love her personality in the whiz. So, you know, the Dorothy character was so great. <laughs> that, I was, know- that was a movie, a movie that therapy created. <laughs> went, to, went to Est, which was, uh, which was, uh, a therapy thing, and she met people in Est, and she decided to make the movie after that. And oh she yeah, a whole I remember bunch that. Of them with her, and it was—it's uh, full of that kind of dialogue, you know, where she she's telling this the this Michael Jackson, the Scarecrow, you're just uh, you're just a victim of whatever happened in your childhood. I mean, she's spouting all of the psychobabble, and I thought this is really weird for the Wiz, but that you know, is awesome to know that because that explains a lot more explains about. A lot. And I mean, look. <laughs> For her to attempt to play that character, who is like de-glamorized and is, is supposed to be is younger than she is, obviously. Sure. But spends the entire movie in that one dress and that and that one hairstyle easing on down the road. I mean, this is exactly the opposite of the Diana Ross that people were used to seeing. And, uh, and it was one of the reasons why it, it didn't succeed, I think, it was because it was a big, splashy musical. And at the center was this very drab character that she had uh, 
that you know they wanted to see her be fabulous. There was a lot of fabulous in that movie, but she wasn't it. It was the, it was other stuff. Oh, that's interesting. Anyway. Yeah. I think too for me, like you you said with uh you know uh, we were talking about mahogany, you were talking about yeah it was kind of a stinker, but um, yeah. but you know and I know I remember when the Wiz came out and I remember it being on TV and I remember didn't really get a lot of praise, but I mean I oh. I see I seen it not too long ago and I loved it. I thought it was it amazing. Was, it was a huge bomb. It was a huge bomb, uh, and it was uh, Sidney Lumet who was a brilliant director who I worked with later. And he decided to make it a kind of Valentine to a fantasy New York, New York being the Emerald City. Uh, and it's just, it was, it was, it was just too much of everything. And I, I, as I said, I think I'm part of the problem was that that she was that was not who they want, what they wanted to see from her. But she got very disheartened by that. You know, she oh, hasn't no. had that much of a movie career because she got she she came out of the canon with this tremendous success, and then Mahogany, which didn't do badly, but was a, a genre picture. And then, um, and then the Wiz, which was a tremendous bomb. And after that, she just she she got gun shy. The Bodyguard was written for her, uh, and uh, and Ryan O'Neill actually. And uh, she was gonna then she backed away from that, and uh, oh, a whole lot of projects that she's backed away from. So that I guess that set in uh, kind of a production hell for a while, or you know, wasn't being produced because that was. Well, it's, you know, development. Development. There you go. Happens, development happens to you know so many. There, uh, so many. There is still a, the Lady Gaga Star is Born was in development forever as a vehicle for Beyonce. Oh wow! It was that we're going to do a Black Star is Born. That was, was going to be you know a hip hop uh, artist and uh, and it just you know it languished and eventually Bradley Cooper came along and said I I see a way to do this and I see the girl who I think I can do it with. And uh, and Gaga had been waiting for a long. I mean, she didn't. She wanted a movie career, which is odd because she hasn't really jumped on a movie career since. But she wanted that, and uh, but she would. She wanted to take baby steps. She didn't want to jump into something big at the very beginning. So she held off, and at the time, she, it was right. For you know, I'm pretty sure she was in um, Machete. Yes, she was in that. Well, she was getting her feet wet. And yeah, and she did a good job. I was really glad she did uh, Ryan Murphy's series, uh, American Horror Story. Oh, that's right. That's right. I haven't uh, seen that season yet. And she she did some on camera stuff just because I think she because she wanted to get familiar with it. And, you know, any of these uh, rock stars, they have they do videos, so they know all about production. Uh, it, they don't. They're not familiar with keeping sustaining a character over three months every day you know they, they have to pick that up as they go along and so and most of them do some of them doesn't work out but <laughs> <laughs> in her case it sure did work out i mean because she, she's great well she's definitely a talented person and a multi-talented person i think she yeah. uh i i've not watched i've never seen i've not seen the movie but uh heard great things so i'm sorry i was born she's very good in it i mean she's very real and it, that I think that's calculated on her part. That sounds weird, but you know, at the beginning, we never saw Lady Gaga's face. She didn't like it. She she showed us her body. You know, she'd wear a dress made of meat <laughs> right. because she didn't want you to look everything and with a veil. I mean, lots of, of not not quite like Sia, not with a lampshade on her head. <laughs> but I mean, she uh, uh, she I think she was you know revealing herself slowly because she she wasn't a conventional beauty. But but it worked, you know. It worked for and and in this thing, 
you, you forget that she is uh, Lady Gaga, you know, because she doesn't, she doesn't do any of that stuff. I mean, the strange part of it is you'll see she becomes like Britney Spears in the movie. And you think, well, gee, she's better than that. You know, I mean, I would think she'd become Joni Mitchell. I mean, the, from the early things in the movie, you think, oh, this, yeah. But no, she becomes somebody on SNL with chorus boys and and a red wig. And I think, really? That's that's the vision of the star. But you know, that's just that's my you know, me. I mean, it's hard to argue with a hundred million dollar movie, you know. <laughs> but that was uh was that was that I mean, was it kind of the irony of it? Or was that actually just no, that's the happy ending. Which was it the irony that she had been this super real person and she becomes this plastic fake with dancing people and everything. Well, I think that may have been, yes, I think that may have been part of it, but I did, it wasn't explored too heavily oh. because uh, as with all versions of A Star is Born, it's really about him. It's about the, 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 the guy because it's about his disintegration and she can't save him. So her becoming a star is almost incidental because the story is about when he is a big star and he enables her to become one and then she wants, but she can't save him from his, his own destruction. Mm -hmm. And in, in, all, uh, in all of the versions of it, the men have been as strong, if, uh, uh, they had strong, strong performances. James Mason with Judy Garland and Chris Christopherson with Barbara Streisand and even, even the very earliest original source material uh, back in the 30s, before the first version of Star is Born. Uh, well, the first one was Janet Gaynor and Frederick March. I mean, they were all, you know. And in this one, Bradley is uh, terrific. I mean, he's very dissolute. I mean, she can't, she can't save him, and that's the tragedy. Of wow. it. Not a happy ending. I, I hate to. Spoiler alert: <laughs> Star is Born has never had a happy ending. <laughs> well, Bruce, you know? the star also yeah. dies. No. Bruce, you was talking about uh, reviewing stuff. I, I think it was Quentin Tarantino that said he was going to do 10 movies and then he was just going to become a movie reviewer. And that was, he was looking forward to that on some level. Do you ever think, I'd like to review stuff again? Or do you, is, nah. because. <laughs> nah. <laughs> you know, I, I got out of it so long ago, 45 years ago. Uh, I mean, I, I like having opinions, but I don't. I don't have a need to express them uh, in uh, in print. And you, I found that I quit because I got what I call the critic's disease, which is when you're forced to see everything, you you find you find something that you sort of like, and you overpraise it like crazy because everything else you've seen is such crap. And when you see something that you really don't like, you you go to work on it with tongs and you forget the human beings made it. And you're being oh so clever in, in decimating it. But it's, it's, it's more about you working out your own misery. And that's that's the critic disease. Like, you know, uh, I mean, yeah, you're getting, yeah, you're, you know, you're well known and all that, but still, uh, you wind up taking it out on the, on the artists. And I said, you know what? I don't want to do that anymore. If I'd known, however, <laughs> that I could stay in Chicago like Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert and become a TV critic and a multimillionaire, I might have thought differently. <laughs> but their show started out as a little public television show. And that, oh, really? That blossomed, yeah. 
into a big syndicated hit. I used to really like reading Rex Reed's reviews, but it wasn't about, oh, I didn't really care yeah. if he liked him or not, because Rex would just be He's painful. a great writer. He's very yeah. interesting. He still writes. I, I mean, I think you can, I don't know, he may just write for his own website, but but he's on every list and they, they quote him because he's Rex Reed. He used to write for The Observer. I'm not sure if he's still, you know, the Jared Kushner paper. I'm not sure if he's still there. <laughs> But he's he is a very entertaining writer, and you know he is an old school guy. I mean, he he. Uh, well, I like that he'll make references, you know, that I'll get, and other people I'm sure are left in the dusk, because it's you know it's only old queens who know what he's talking about. <laughs> but uh, he just he has such such a natty Turner phrase. You know, I mean, even years ago I remember an interview, and I can't remember who it was with, but he. Uh, uh, I'm in Malibu, where you can lie in the sand and look up at the stars, or vice versa. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so, Bruce, what is the like? You've done, you know, you performed, you you've written uh, for award shows, written music, uh, written written all, in all kinds of venues. What's your favorite thing to do? Is there something that you go? This is when you're doing this. It's my favorite it's, thing to do is nothing I'm ever paid for, and I, I'd like to spend the moment on that. <laughs> my fa uh, performing is great. I mean, I love live performing. I would love to go back to Broadway to the theater and do a show, even eight a week. I I, I love doing eight a week. It pushes an OCD button that I didn't know I had. I, I <laughs> love going out. There. Let's see. Let's see what we can do with it tonight. Uh, that's great. And I mean, performing is you know instant gratification. Uh, even even if it's not going well, you, you kind of forget, how do I dig myself out of this hole? Writing is gratifying too, but uh, you have to work yourself into the alpha state where you are surrounded by what you're writing and nothing else gets in. Uh, and that's harder to do when you're writing. And you don't, you know, you don't get that gratification. I do a lot of collaborative writing, so I do hear people laughing. And so, the, so there, there is that happening. But I could go on doing either. I mean, <laughs> do you ever listen? Do you listen to music when you write? Do you have any kind of white noise going on? What What do you like? Have I, lights up or? I tend to I tend to have jazz, uh, depending on what I'm doing. Sometimes it's, the silence is wonderful, and then sometimes I just feel like I, I need to fill up the the, the room with sound. Uh, it really there's no nothing hard and fast. But I do tend to listen to jazz because. Uh, and, and instrumental jazz because uh, lyrics will distract me, and uh, the jazz kind of keeps keeps things poking along. But you can listen to just so much smooth jazz, and <laughs> you know, and after a while, you just get tired of all the Kenny G kind of clarinet riffs, on, you know, on the smooth jazz uh, pods and channels and all of that. So, Bruce, uh, this is one of the questions I like to ask for people that perform live: is how long does it take you to read a room? And do you tend to adjust from when you read a room? And, you know, uh, I've heard people say, oh, I can, I can, when, when we walk in, I can tell what the, the crowd's going to be like. Uh, well, do you find that? And do you, you adjust can, or not? Well, you can. Uh, first of all, you can, by the initial reception, when you just walk out, if they're really thrilled and happy to be there and you know they've come to party. Or if it's, uh, if it's mild, it's like, oh, they're kind of mental. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and then a few things you say, you can, you can say a, a 
throw in a few items at the beginning to get you'll 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 get to the level of the room. You'll get to figure out some things you'll know. Oh, they didn't like that. They got that. Whatever. I mean, I I I'm not a comic comic. I tell stories mostly, and uh, but I'll I'll open with some with a lot of local material, like I like Beth does, like I did starting with her um, to see how they respond to that. They tend to be tickled that you know anything about their town. Mm. Except in the big, well, even in the bigger cities, they are. But I always think that the the, the best is when when something doesn't happen. You you know, you just kind of say, oh well, that oh well, oh you don't like, you're not in the mood for that. Huh? Oh well, you know, and you can you turn it around. You know, you it's sort of like what they call savers. You know, you can uh, a saver is actually like some a joke that you throw in after something doesn't work. You know, I mean, Johnny Carson was was like the king of the sabers. He always, he didn't say this, but it would be kind of like, wow, I was like a screen door on a submarine, you know, something like oh, that. Yeah. Part an iron lung, you know, one of those. <laughs> and that they would laugh at. And then you could, you could, you, you had regrouped at that point. So you could go on. So, so I, then we, we, at Hairspray, I did Hairspray for two years. And we knew right away, the moment the house lights went down, if there wasn't a cheer and said, we thought, okay, we're going to have to work for this one. They're they're a real theater audience. I mean, they're they're not coming because you know they they're they're at the hottest musical and they they're ready to have a good time already. So, so what's what do you like better? Do you like it when you it's a challenge and try to win them over, or do you like uh, in the the enthusiasm of a great crowd? Oh, I'd rather have enthusiasm of a great crowd. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, when I'll give you an example. I mean, this was a bet example. I mean, she played, she had a residency at Caesar's Palace for a year. And um, it, it, when, when Bette Midler plays uh, Peoria, it's a red letter day. I mean, 20,000 people show up in a hockey rink and they really, it's a big night. They've really, they've, they've saved for this and, it, and they're, they're all, they're dressed up and they're, you know, they're all, some of, a lot of them are in drag and costumes and they're going to have, a night and the energy the moment the lights go down the energy is astonishing now you go to vegas and you are item 7 30 slot on their day half of them have never been up this late in their lives <laughs> and the other half is walking around with you know a coffee cup full of quarters that they plan on, on shoving into a machine when it's up. and half of them are like big fans and the other half are like oh that middle is in town let's go see her it's like the energy level is, and when the lights go down, you you feel, feel the difference. You feel the energy from a few people and a lot of people who were going to, who were sitting there going, okay, show me. And when you've been touring a lot to people who are there because they want to see you and not just because you're in town and they're in town, uh, you get to know the difference. And it's uh, very wearying. I, I mean, a lot of people, I can see why they, they only want to play Vegas for one night in a big arena where the locals will come. Mm, yeah, they don't yeah. want to be at a casino place, but you know, but the money's irresistible, and so Elton John sits there and plays piano for <laughs> seven years. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the Mr. Vegas? What was his name? Wayne Gosh. Newton. Wayne Newton. Yes, Daddy, don't you walk so fast? <laughs> I well, yeah, love that. When I was the a funny kid. thing about there are people who are Vegas acts. And people would go to Vegas to see them. It would be like, this is a thing you must do when you're in Vegas because he's not, you're not going to see him anywhere else. And Wayne Newton was one of those. Although he did tour, but mostly he played Vegas. There were a handful of people who were just like, 
big Vegas names, and uh, and they were they were bread and butter. I mean, they were it was a local local thing, and so they did get that kind of uh, energy because people wanted to see them. Oh, absolutely! I wanted to go back a little bit here. You mentioned that you were in Hairspray, and you played Edna Turnblad, um, an amazing role. Yeah. How did it feel to play a role made famous by Divine? Oh, uh, you know, I, I didn't think of it that way. Also, between Divine and me was Harvey Firestein, oh, who had yes. won the Tony for doing it on Broadway and very much made it his own and had a hand in writing the show, actually. And, uh, and I did, too, because I had to change things that Harvey had written for himself that you could only do if you did an impression of Harvey. You know, that I couldn't come out of here. Some of the jokes about speaking like this. Which you know, kind of like stuff that Carol Channing would do that only Carol Channing would. Do. <laughs> um, so I had I had these two icons to, to live up. So it was uh, it was challenging, and uh, but I, I thought the only thing you know, that John Waters was concerned about was that she was a real woman, that she wasn't it wasn't a guy doing doing draggy thing, doing you know swishy uh, or quote things. It was playing it for real. And uh, that's what I was doing. I was, you know, uh, I looked at, I, I put the makeup on the hair and I looked like my Aunt Pauline. And I, I just remembered, I remembered all of those women I grew up with uh, who are, you know, Edna Turnblad, 1962 in Baltimore. Well, 1962 in Patterson, New Jersey. I was surrounded by those women playing cards with my mother. <laughs> so uh, I just kind of took my cue from them. And from, you know, what's, what's in What's in the uh, the script, which is uh, which is wonderful, and I mean it's uh, <laughs> she's she's very warm and very loving, and not all that bright, but not too not stupid either. She has some street smarts, but she's not well educated, and so she doesn't express herself in the highest terms. So I I didn't think about it after a while. I am my own special creation. Well, there you go. Yeah, absolutely. It's and you know I I I knew that Harvey had done that. Harvey Weinstein, uh, Weinstein. <laughs> Harvey Fierstein had done that. Happened. You know that actually happened. I mean, uh, uh, he. Uh, I had an interviewer who said, and and Harvey Wein and, and Harvey uh, Harvey Fierstein played this on Broadway. I said yes, yes. Well, how did he manage to do that and run a movie company at the same time? Oh my god. <laughs> And this was actually a, a, on a, a radio show in like Cincinnati. <laughs> oh, a live! I, I kind of paused, thinking that 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 it was a joke, and I and I realized it wasn't. And I said, "You know, you're thinking of Michael Feinstein." <laughs> <laughs> and she changed the subject right away. <laughs> well, that's awesome. <laughs> anyway, what was your question? I'm used. To, well, the, the, this is a really weird thing going on with uh, with hairspray. Hairspray came out and it was a movie. It was a musical movie. Divine was in it. I thought it was amazing. I thought it was really good. They had great characters. So then it's it, it goes to become a, a Broadway play and a musical, Broadway musical. And I think, well, that's cool. Then they make it a movie again from the Broadway play. I'm like, are we going to have it again? Or are we going to have a Hairspray, you know, 2060 in the future? I don't know. It's a... Uh yeah, John actually wrote a sequel. Oh, he did. Uh, and at one point, after the movie, the movie was a big hit. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, both movies were, but the, the Travolta movie was a really big hit, like a $100 million movie. And uh, 
Uh, and so they went. They came to him, and they said, "We want to do another another one," and and carried this forward. And I think, and he wrote it. And I don't think I don't know whether he didn't like it or they didn't like it or they it just I don't know. They just felt like where where have these where do these characters go? And uh, um, it would have to be they got older, and then this is about their the next generation or what? And also, you know, John doesn't. John never writes on demand, you know. I mean, he had these ideas, and every one of his movies has been this one, some crazy idea of his. And to, to kind of like have to come up and, and kind of break the bones of his child and come up with a new version of it. I don't think he was wildly interested. I mean, I could be wrong, but it, it never, at any event, it never happened. But it was, it was absolutely in the hopper. Huh, that's interesting. That. And, you know, it could be... You know, it could be a series, you know, you never, you never just, I never, just think well, what I, HBO Max is looking for stuff. <laughs> hey, they need it now more than ever. Yeah. I know you've written for tons of people. Who was your favorite person to write for? Bet. Bet. Absolutely. I didn't, I didn't say I bet. I'd that. be crazy, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, the, the longest and, and most fulfilling relationship of them all. But I, I like, I, I love all of them. I mean, there's nobody... I don't really have terrible stories about people because, uh, I mean, I have some people I did a couple of things for and I, it didn't work out, but just, nobody behaved bad, but nobody was, I, you know, I didn't leave with a bad taste in my mouth. And maybe that's, I don't know why. Maybe that's what I'm just so lovable. <laughs> I, I don't know, but I don't have any, you know. I, I, so you I don't, don't have any horror stories? You want to name names? <laughs> this person was so horrible. No. I, <laughs> I, I Seriously, I don't. They, uh, I, I I get that that's a great interview question. I used to be an interviewer. I know that. <laughs> you know, and whenever they say, "What's your favorite?" or "What's the best?" "What's the worst?" You know, it's like I don't. I never think in those terms. Absolutes. Those are like interview questions, and I and I I get that they're you know you can draw somebody out with that kind of stuff, but I I just never. Inquiring minds want to know, Bruce. <laughs> Do they really? <laughs> they really. You know, I like. Do they really give a shit what I think is the best movie I've ever seen? What is the best movie you've ever seen? No, I mean, I, I had I, Bette Midler in it. I know that. No, 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 it didn't. But, uh, <laughs> well, there's some dirt. <laughs> well, <I'm> just kidding. <laughs> look at her canon. She made some great pictures. I mean, I. Uh, she made some movies I love. I love Big Business. I, I worked on, I've middlerized several. Wow. But um, uh, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I look at the, the list of the AFI 100 and they have they have 16 movies that are better than All About Eve. And I love All About Eve, but it's a movie about the Broadway theater. So of course I'm going to like it. And The Bandwagon is a movie about the Broadway theater. <laughs> and there are a lot of Hollywood parodies I like. Uh, but I mean, I have, you know, like, Favorites, Tom Jones. I mean, the movies that are favorites of mine are not in the canon, the classic canon that everybody throws at you. You know, yeah, I mean, I, The Godfather, all those, they're great movies, but they're not favorites of mine. I have many guilty pleasures. There's a picture called There's No Business Like Showbiz. I recommend hardly to everybody. It's a Fox musical from the 50s in Cinemascope and, and deluxe color, and it's uh, all the Irving Berlin music, and it has Ethel Merman, Marilyn Monroe, Wow. Johnny Ray, Mitzi Gaynor, Dan Daly, Donald O'Connor as a vaudeville act. Oh, wow. I mean, it, it has to be seen to be believed. It really has to be. It was written by Nora Ephron's parents, Henry and Phoebe Ephron, who were big studio writers. Hmm. 
And uh, and it's just it's just a fabulous mess. I mean, it's just it's <laughs> full of scenes that make you go. <laughs> but then there'll be there'll be numbers. I mean, Monroe's famous heat wave numbers from that movie. So there's there's uh, you know I mean I'd, I'd recommend it to anyone it's, as a guilty pleasure. I mean, don't go in there expecting to be to see Citizen Kane. Don't watch Mank and expect that to be Citizen Kane. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, seems I, to be I, one of the movies of the year. Mank. What Mank? About, uh, about Herman Mankiewicz who wrote Citizen Kane. It's a big Netflix thing with Gary Oldman. Do you follow uh, movies? Uh, sometimes, yeah. I like a lot of movies. But oh, here's, the here's one. season, and it's going to be like The Trial of the Chicago Seven. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The funniest thing I've ever seen is Sasha Baron Cohen doing a New York Jewish accent. <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. It's peerlessly funny. I mean, he's, he's a high class Brit, and he is putting this thing on. Half of what he says is comprehensible. Because <laughs> and he has a lot to say because it's an Aaron Sorkin movie, and you know Aaron oh, yeah. writes arias for people. One of the things that I, you know, as I uh, wrap up my questioning is, is I think about uh, all kinds of creative endeavors, and I think for personally, like when I started out doing art, you know, and for people, you think, oh, this is a, a project that I, I got to kill it, you know, and you you don't have really the skill set. Uh, and so you're really sweating at tra- trying to put together something good. But as you build your skill set, like now, I feel like if somebody said, I need a killer poster, you know, I, I could just go through my, my, uh, my toolkit and, and, and put it together something that I think, oh, that'll be visually dynamic. Do you feel the same way with, you know, you're at a point where you've done a lot of high profile, high pressure kind of gigs. Is, do you feel anxiety when you're going into a high, uh, you know, high stakes project, or do you feel like I got the I've got the uh, toolkit and I just work my tools and I'll be fine? Yeah, it's a good question, and the, the answer is B. <laughs> <laughs> and and more than that, I mean, because I, 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 look, it's worked before. I mean, I suppose if I didn't have anxiety about it, I wouldn't have a house full of framed letters from people saying, what a great show that was. Thank you. You know, because basically when you're sitting in the middle of the night writing something and it's not writing, it's not happening. I look around the room and I go, well, see how that worked out. Oh, they like that. Oh, look, there's an Emmy up there. On the- they like that. I'm OK. I can do this. And so I think that there's that a little bit of that when it's not happening the way you'd like it to happen. I suppose you feel that way. But a lot of the times when you go into a show and I've been around for so long and done so many shows that when that when somebody who is younger will say, and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And I little voice inside me says, sure, you are. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, it's not going to happen because, you know, every they've all said, yeah, we're going to do that. Yeah, yeah, we did that 20 years ago. I mean, this just happened. I, I, I gave an interview to The New York Times about how the, they should do the Oscar show this year. What, what ideas would I give them? And it was with a bunch of other people. And, and one of them had an idea. They should have, uh, the thank you speeches are boring. They should have uh, uh, a ticker underneath the, the person. And they give you, the winner, everybody gives them a list of people to thank while they're thanking the speech. They said, yeah, we did that 20 years ago with Billy Crystal. Everybody hated it. Hated it. <laughs> well, they should bring they should bring the nominees on stage like Miss Universe. And, and they should all be there. And they can, uh, yeah, we did that once. Uh, and we had them standing at their seats. Everybody hated it. You know, so it's like they they don't, they didn't watch. They didn't know. So I, I you know, and now I'm sitting here going, oh, I'd be Eminence Grease. 
I've seen all these things. And I'm here to tell you, they won't work. But people have to find out for themselves. All you can do is say to them, uh, that's been tried, found wanting. <laughs> and well, you, know, you, let them, you let them run. <laughs> this is why I don't produce, because I didn't want to be in, in. I wanted to be a part of a team, be a consultant. But I didn't want to have to worry about, you know, so-and-so's hairdresser is stuck in traffic. What are we, and we're losing 100 grand an hour. What do we do about that? You know, I don't want that. I don't need that kind. I got, I got other. I got my own. I got a farting pug. I don't need, <laughs> I don't need that shit. <laughs> yeah, some of those jobs are. Some of those things are great. Uh, you look at them as a goal, and then when you get closer to that goal, you go, "I don't want anything to do with that." Um, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, well, the people who like to, to be in charge and all that, they're creative as well. And they, and of course, they have, they, they feel they're protecting their vision. But when you do a show like this, it's uh, a, you know, an Oscar show or one of these things. It's like uh, your vision kind of is subordinate to, to the task at hand. If you want to do something to your vision, be George Lucas and invent a, a world that only you know about. And if they don't like it, they don't have to buy it. It's but true. if they do buy it, you'll make them rich. So yeah. uh, that's not, these award shows and this kind of stuff is not like that. These are going to happen whether you like it or not. And they have to follow a certain kind of form. And the creativity involves making them in, as interesting as possible while still serving that God. <laughs> Bruce, I've got, oh, I've got a couple more questions for you. I know we're getting uh, into your, uh, into later than I told you we'd have you, but it's been great talking to you so far. Um, so I have a, a silly interviewer question. Uh, what is better to you, a mediocre idea with a great execution or a great idea with a mediocre execution? Um, uh, you know, neither are too wonderful. <laughs> uh, so it would be hard to choose. It's kind of like saying which piece of dung in the pile of horse manure is prettier than the other. <laughs> I mean, if it's, if it's a mediocre idea and it's brilliantly, it, you know, it's, it, put together, then uh, um, it's not that great. I will give you an example, and, and I'm sure I'll be shot at dawn for saying this. <laughs> the weekend at the Super Bowl, brilliantly staged, gorgeously shot, but who cares? Who's, who is he? I mean, he has no star power. I, was, I, I don't know him well, but I was prepared to be dazzled by him. Ain't nothing there. I mean, whatever he's got happens on record. And to a crowd, you know, I mean, I knew one, I can't find my face. I can't feel my face without you. Uh, but he's not like a star. He's just somebody who's had a whole bunch of records. And, and he, he seemed to be winking his way through it anyway, like as if to say, you know, isn't this ridiculous? Here I am wearing a, a, a jacket that Halston made for Liza Minnelli 40 years ago <laughs> and, and dancing around with a bunch of people wearing jockstraps on their faces. Uh, and isn't this fabulous? No, it's not. It's not Gaga. It's not Brit Katy Perry. It's not Madonna. It's not Springsteen. It's not Prince. It's not Justin Timberlake. It's not up there with any of that. The staging, the execution is magnificent. But there's a great big hole at the center where the star should be. And now I have to hide under my desk. For the rest of <laughs> well put. I knew I could have you say something mean about somebody. It just took me time. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm I, kidding. I don't know him and he's not untalented. It's just that he's not, he's not the guy for that gig. No, absolutely. My estimation. I didn't see it. I didn't watch the Super Bowl, but I heard everything and I looked at the pictures and I, I would have to agree with you, but you know, on I the other to... hand, on the other hand, I know Gavin Rossdale Bush. Yeah. And, 
there's a phenomenal video. He, he played, I think, uh, Glenbourne or one of the British festivals outdoor and it was pouring down rain. And he continued to do his act with Bush. And it was genius. It was at, because he's the real thing. He's a genuine rock star. And he, you know, it's like Diana Ross in the rain at, uh, in Central Park. I mean, it doesn't stop her from being Diana Ross. I mean, she was, it, she's great in a, in a mediocre situation. Mm-hmm. In a terrible, disadvantageous situation. But she comes through anyway. Right, I've held forth enough on this. <laughs> well, that's I, you know, I really appreciate that answer because it, it, uh, you know, you you put the dart right in the middle where it, you know, that makes sense what you said. I've heard a lot of people griping about it, but that's the most succinct way I've I've heard it it put. You're just a truly funny guy. I kind of feel like it's almost like you're always working, and maybe you are. I don't know. I mean, you're just. I think you're just, you know. You've been killing me through this whole thing. And I know part of it is I'm talking to Bruce Valanche and that's just amazing. But do you ever feel like you just don't want to joke? You just don't want to, uh, you feel like you're, you're not, you don't want to wear that. You don't want to be the Bruce Valanche, that Bruce Valanche. Well, yeah, but I mean, uh, I get plenty of time, chances to do that when I'm not in a professional situation. I'm not on a podcast or something like that. And hang so, out with your pod. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mike Nichols said years ago, one of my favorite things, he said, uh, interviews are performances masquerading as conversations. And there really is no way around it. I mean, when you're a performer, you're a performer. When, it's, when they, you know, I mean, I used to, used to joke with, uh, uh, Henny Youngman was a comic who was a real stand-up comic. And, and, and we used to joke, he'd say, I open the refrigerator door, the light goes on, I do 20 minutes. <laughs> Yeah. So I guess that's just, you know, kind of goes with the territory. But uh, I also like to have a good time. I like to have fun. And uh, so, but it's, it's not, it's not all of this all the time. Well, but yeah. I'd, rather, I'd rather be, you know, have fun and be funny than, than like be drudge, drudgery or serious or, I mean, serious when it's required. But uh, there's no reason that's why you can't make everything fun and interesting in your life. That's the idea. If you can't do that, then. I'm sorry for you, but I'm trying. <laughs> I agree 100%. Absolutely. Well, this is an up note to end with. Well, Bruce, I really appreciate you coming on with us tonight and talking to us. I'm just well, uh, floored uh, by having you as a guest. Well, uh, this is, you're now my, he's my second Norbert after Norbert Leo Butts. Bruce, it was great. I really appreciate Thank your you. time. Great. Thanks nice for hanging out. Stuff. Of course. I will see you in India, back home in India. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Have a good night. Bye-bye. Thanks for hanging out with us on the True Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit us at Facebook. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. Until next time, stay true and stay creative. Hey, hey. You're too late.